what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. A White House spokesperson not answering whether cocaine found last week belonged to the president or his son. He said he can't answer because the allegations were made by former President Trump. Is the growing economy slowing? Jobs added are below expectations. Are the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes finally having an impact? Controversial cluster bombs sent to Ukraine? They're expected to be part of a new aid package set to be announced today. Over 100 countries have banned the weapons. Find out why. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen meets with a Chinese premier during her trip to Beijing. She called out China for its punitive moves against U.S. companies. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers. Our top news, a Biden administration spokesperson invoking the Hatch Act after being asked about cocaine found at the White House. Some are now wondering how the law is connected to the situation and why the spokesperson avoided the question. Former President Trump and others have said that cocaine found at the White House might belong to President Biden or his son. On Thursday, a reporter asked White House Deputy Press Secretary Andrew Bates if that's true to which he responded. I don't have uh, a response to that because we have to be careful about the Hatch Act. Encyclopedia Britannica describes the Hatch Act saying its main provision provides civil service employees in the executive branch of the federal government, except the president and vice president from engaging in some forms of political activity. Conservative communicator Steve Guest responded to the audio saying, odd that Bates pivots to the Hatch Act and doesn't deny the question. Attorney Bradley P. Moss told Fox News, I could envision other legitimate bases for declining to respond, such as respecting the integrity of the ongoing investigation, but references to the Hatch Act seem misplaced. The outlet asked Bates to clarify why he referred to the Hatch Act. He responded saying that Trump's comments about the Bidens were a direct comment from a declared candidate. Meanwhile, former Secret Service agent Bobby McDonald told the Ingraham Angle that the Secret Service might know who the culprit is that he doesn't agree that the West Wing of the White House is a highly visited area. It may be on a Monday through Friday, although I don't think that it's very highly traversed over a holiday weekend. So mm. my guess is that the Secret Service has a fairly good idea uh, of who may be involved in this yeah. situation. They definitely have an idea of who was on the campus that weekend. Let's talk the White House on Thursday said that the Secret Service is working on the investigation to find the owner of the drugs. California Governor Gavin Newsom wants to probe Republican-led states. He wrote a letter to the U.S. Attorney General about the recent transport of illegal immigrants. Over the past year, illegal immigrants have been transported from Texas to Massachusetts and California in initiatives funded by Florida. In the letter, Newsom says this was under false pretenses. He asks the DOJ to open criminal and civil investigations into the matter. Last September, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis transported around 50 illegal immigrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard. And in June, Florida sent two flights carrying illegal immigrants to Sacramento. DeSantis defended these flights, arguing that sanctuary jurisdictions like California share the blame for the illegal immigration crisis. He has also criticized the lack of federal action. A report from the Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security reveals a series of critical errors resulting in the release of a suspected terrorist. I dove into the details with Todd Bensman, Senior National Security Fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. Todd Bensman, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. 
Todd, a suspected terrorist almost made it into our country because the southern border is overwhelmed. Break down what happened. Well, the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General has just released the results of an investigation they did into the premature release of an immigrant who crossed at Yuma, Arizona, who was on the FBI's terrorism watch list last year. What it found was that Border Patrol was too overwhelmed with mass migration to do the routine counterterrorism work that they're supposed to do. And had they uh, just uh, been in a normal uh, place where uh, you know regular numbers of people were coming through, uh, this guy never would have gotten free. But instead, uh, he found himself released with you know hundreds of thousands of others into the American interior on these kind of uh, pinky finger agreements to voluntarily report in the interior later. And he's on an airplane, he flew to Florida, and then only then did they figure out that he was on the FBI terror watch list as a positive. And this set off this urgent manhunt to go find him, and finally they did track him down. Uh, this case was filled with communications failures uh, and um, really just, uh, you know, illustrates how the mass migration crisis has made America more vulnerable to terrorist infiltration. We've had more than 200 uh, actually be apprehended who are on the FBI's terror watch list in two years. They're coming. Now, Todd, the DHS has said that OIS has sensationalized this report. What do you make of that? Well, you don't need to sensationalize anything. The facts in the report uh, are sensational enough. Uh, they spell out exactly what happened. It talks about uh, that this guy was on the FBI terror watch list and all the communications breakdowns. Uh, it's sensational by itself. Just keep the language plain. You don't need any, you don't need to dress this thing up. Um, my main question, though, is that I'm aware of several other cases just like this. And the question is whether OIG also is investigating those cases. And what's the state of national security given the state of the border? Well, terrible because, you know, listen, we have counterterrorism programs in place that are, that are successful and effective. They have kept the country safe from terror attack over that border. It's not like we don't have plenty of people coming from uh, countries of national security concern over that border. We have thousands every year, even when there's no mass migration crisis. But the numbers that are coming over for the last two and a half years are so massive, historically huge, the greatest in U.S. history, actually, that those counterterrorism programs are undermined, they're undercut, they're eroded. And this OIG report, the most important thing about it is that it recognizes this. It says plainly over and over again that the that the agents on the ground were too busy to open their emails, uh, were too busy to do the counterterrorism that they're supposed to do. There are more cases like this. You can find them at cis.org under my name, Todd Benzman. I write about these all the time. Well, Todd Benzman, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you for having me. Turning our attention now to state politics, New Hampshire is the latest state to ban boycotts of Israel. That means the state won't enter into contracts with companies that boycott Israel. New Hampshire's Governor Chris Sununu signed an executive order on Thursday regarding the issue. This makes New Hampshire the 37th state in the nation to enact such a regulation. The state government is prohibited from making contracts or investments with companies that boycott Israel and its trade partners. The Israeli-American Coalition for Action praised Sununu for his move, saying he's standing up against discrimination. Meanwhile, the Council on American-Islamic Relations condemned the rule, saying it violates the First Amendment. Eighteen people were taken to hospitals after a double-decker tour bus collided with a New York City public bus in Manhattan. The front windows of the tour bus were shattered. Sixty-three more people were evaluated for met by medical professionals at the scene. All injuries were non-life-threatening. The Top View tour bus collided with the rear of a bus operated by New York City's Metropolitan Transportation Authority. This was around 7 p.m. last night on Manhattan's east side. Our department officials said both buses were full of people. Most of the injuries were cuts, scrapes, and bruises, but some people were treated for suspected fractured bones and head and neck injuries. Officials declined to comment on the cause of the crash. After the break, three food delivery companies are taking New York City to court. They're challenging a new minimum wage for food delivery workers. And how much money can bring security? One survey says Americans feel the figure is over $200,000 per year. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The U.S. economy adds 209,000 jobs in June. This is below analysts' expectations. The unemployment rate ticked down 3.6 percent and wages increased 0.4 percent month over month. For more in-depth analysis, NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with a job market expert. And here with me is Julia Pollack, chief economist at Zip Recruiter. So after 13 consecutive beats of expectations, we now get a softer print uh, for the jobs numbers today, but still about 200,000. So pretty solid. What are we seeing with this report? This is still a solid report. Uh, unemployment is still very low at 3.6 percent, and 209,000 jobs added is nothing to sneeze at. But there are clear signs that the labor market is cooling. Let me walk you through just a few of those. So, one, this is the lowest print in uh, since December of 2020. Uh, two, the job finding rate for unemployed workers has gone down below its pre-pandemic sort of average. Uh, three, you know, temporary help services employment keeps falling. That is usually a leading economic indicator uh, and something to watch. Um, we also saw a big increase in the number of workers working part-time for economic reasons uh, because their hours were cut or because they couldn't find full-time work. That's another sign of sort of softening demand for labor. And lastly, uh, the unemployment rate for black workers rose to 6%. Now, that's a very noisy series. It could just be statistical noise. Uh, but we do know that when labor market conditions soften, it is typically underrepresented workers who get hit first. Do you think the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes are finally having an impact on the labor market? 
That is very much the uh, the takeaway that I would I would take from this report. Yes, the labor market uh, is finally starting to feel the effects of higher interest rates. So, uh, among other reasons, you said the number of people working part time increasing contributes to the weakness in the labor market. Can you can you elaborate on why that is? Sure. So specifically, uh, workers working part-time for economic reasons. That's workers who would be uh, working full-time if they could, but whose hours have been cut recently either because there just isn't enough activity uh, or or because there aren't uh, full-time jobs available. Uh, the decline in hours over the past year uh, is also because many of the jobs added have been part-time. Some for voluntary reasons. There are workers who are picking up part-time jobs uh, because they want to. Um, but the fact that we're now seeing an increase in those who are taking on part-time work because they have to is a bit more uh, concerning. And it suggests that there are workers who are, are increasingly underemployed. Do you expect uh, this report to be an outlier or is this going to be a continuous trend going forward? So I think we are now back to a sort of sustainable uh, labor market that's no longer overheating, that's adding jobs, that's sort of a solid, steady pace. Uh, I think that we could see stronger reports than this going forward uh, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, employment overall is still well below its pre-pandemic trend. There would be a lot more people employed in this economy if the pandemic had never taken place. And so there's still a lot of catch-up hiring that might take place in the coming months, uh, especially in the government and in childcare services and in industries that were hardest hit. Another reason is we've just had an almost 15% year-to-date return in the stock market uh, and a rebound in consumer confidence, which could bode well for acti activity going forward. All right, thank you so much today, Julia. Always great speaking with you. Good speaking to you too. DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats are challenging New York City's new minimum wage law for food app delivery workers. Starting July 12th, the law would increase pay for app delivery workers to $17.96 per hour before tips and raise pay again to nearly $20 per hour in April 2025. The food delivery platforms say the law would hurt delivery workers more than help them. DoorDash and Grubhub allege that the law is legally flawed because it targets only meal delivery services, not grocery delivery services, and would force companies to pay workers for hours that they are available, even if they don't actually make any deliveries. They also say the law would increase the cost to consumers, adding an average of $5.18 per order. The city's new law comes after online meal delivery services spiked in popularity during the pandemic. Now, delivery orders still remain higher than pre-pandemic levels. Mortgage rates went up again last week to the highest so far this year, an average of 6.81% for a 30-year fixed-rate loan. The rate is a tenth of a percent higher than the week before and 1.5% higher than this time last year. That's according to data Freddie Mac released Thursday. Economists say the combination of higher rates and low inventory continues to keep some potential buyers out of the market. Mortgage applications went down last week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Many homeowners are delaying plans to move in in order to keep their current lower mortgage rates. And how much money would you need to feel financially secure or rich? A new survey brought some remarkable figures. People said they would need to earn, on average, $233,000 a year to feel financially secure 
and they would need to make $483,000 a year to feel rich or to attain financial freedom. To put those numbers in perspective, the median earnings for a full-time year-round worker in 2021 was just over $56,000. More than 2,500 adults in the U.S. took part in the bank rate survey. 72% said they did not currently feel financially secure, although 46% said they expect to someday. The top reasons cited for not feeling secure today, 63% said high inflation, that was followed by the economic environment, insufficient emergency savings, insufficient retirement savings, rising interest rates, low pay or low career mobility, high debt, and housing affordability. A Texas school district is not allowing students to use a bathroom that doesn't correspond to their gender. It also won't allow them to choose their own pronouns. The policies come after a push from parent groups. The school district in Tarrant County passed the policies on a 5-0 vote with one school board member abstaining and another not present. The school board president said measures like these lay the groundwork for protecting kids and educators. The effort was led by conservative group Citizens Defending Freedom. The American Civil Liberties Union of Texas said the new policies would harm LGBT students. In a tweet, the organization referred to it as a political attack on students that would create a hostile environment. Pennsylvania's Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro went back on his campaign promise to expand school choice in the state. Democrats and Republicans couldn't agree on the program during budget talks, and Shapiro sided with his party. We spoke with school choice advocate Walter Blanks Jr. to get his take on the move. Walter Blanks Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Walter, Pennsylvania Democrat Governor Josh Shapiro just went back on his commitment to fund school choice in the state. What does that mean for families there? Well, Pennsylvania already has a, a small school choice program, but when you run your campaign with the promise of bringing more school choice and expanding it, and then you're on uh, national television on June 23rd supporting it and talking about the importance of it, and then you know a few weeks later uh, you decide to line item veto uh, the one thing um, that you've been you've been campaigning on, it's it's very disheartening to see and, and very very. Uh, hypocritical on, on his end. He sends his own children to private schools. But for the parents and families in Pennsylvania, um, they won't have that option. They won't have a, a wide variety of options when it comes to their children's education. And it's very, very sad to see, especially with the current school choice landscape across the country, people support it. People want it. Uh, 73% of minority families want school choice. And to see Democrats primarily go against it and do everything they can to stop it is, is very sad to see uh, across the country, but in Pennsylvania specifically. What led to the governor changing his mind? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things. He, he put out a release saying that it was just not being able to uh, agree across party lines and, and all these things. But but I, I honestly believe that it was the unions in, in Pennsylvania doing everything that they can to, to halt uh, the expansion of school choice in the state. And, and I always say this when Politics is played when it comes to school choice. Children are are left out in the cold. And this isn't just a, a simple policy. You're actually impacting the lives of children across the entire state. And in my opinion, it's not a good move and it's not a good look. And, and I have no doubt that, that parents will remember this and families will remember this when election time rolls around. 
Now, most families in the country don't have access to school choice. What does this term mean? It, it means that they're, they're stuck in their school. They're stuck in their government-assigned uh, district school, whether that school is performing or not. And that's why school choice is so important. If a family, if a parent doesn't like where their kid is for uh, a multitude of reasons, right, that kid could be bullied, um, there could be things being taught in the school that the parents don't like, school choice allows that parent to pull their child out and put them in a school that, that best fits their needs, right? We're already spending all of this money, billions of dollars, to educate children. If they're not being educated, they should be able to go to a place where, where they can be educated. And at the end of the day, I trust parents to make the best call for, for their children, not the government. Yeah, parents certainly have the most at stake. Um, how do you think the debate over school choice will play out in our country in the long term? Yeah, well, we've been seeing a lot of conversations around school choice over the past three years because of the, the pandemic. And even just this year, uh, eight states have passed uh, universal school choice programs. And in Ohio, which is where I grew up, um, is, is the latest to, to join the, the universal party. And so over the next two years, especially with the uh, presidential election coming up next year, um, I anticipate a lot of conversations around school choice. And look, Shapiro, I believe that he saw the polls when he was running. He saw the support for it and said that he was going to do it. And now that he got elected, he he decided to go to go back on it. But with elections coming up and, and sessions starting at the end of this year, I expect education and primarily school choice to be the top conversation uh, around the country because parents want answers. We've seen the, the national report card uh, come out um, just about a month ago, and the results are, are abysmal, right? We've gone back to numbers when when the, the country first started doing um, the national assessment. And so numbers are down, uh, public school enrollment is down, and parents want something better. And so legislators and, and policymakers better jump on the train or they'll lose their seat. We've seen a lot of states, like Iowa is a great example, where um, Republicans lost their seats because they didn't support school choice. And with the, the massive support across the country, I anticipate politicians who don't support it losing their seats in the future. Well, Walter Blanks, Jr., spokesman for the American Federation for Children, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Threads had quite the first 24 hours. According to Meta, the new social media site had more than 50 million signups since launching Wednesday. Threads also drew scrutiny from Twitter, a direct competitor. The company threatened legal action and accused Meta of stealing trade secrets when it hired former employees to help develop Threads. Meta said no one on Threads' engineering team used to work at Twitter. The State Department is grappling with an unprecedented surge in passport demand as international travel resumes. Officials urge Americans to check their passports and renew them in advance. The State Department issued a record-breaking nearly 22 million passports last fiscal year, and projections indicate that this fiscal year will surpass that. The surge in demand had resulted in approximately 400,000 passport applications per week. Travelers can expect to wait 10 to 13 weeks for routine passport processing and 7 to 9 weeks for expedited processing. Before the pandemic, routine processing typically took six to eight weeks, while expedited processing took two to three weeks. CNN reports that Americans with summer travel plans should not expect passport processing times to return to pre-pandemic levels until the end of the year. Still to come, it's better to have tough conversations with China than no talks at all. 
New Zealand's prime minister said that's their approach to Beijing. And a North Korean soccer star who played internationally has been missing for over two years. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen shook hands with Chinese Premier Li Qiang today on a visit to Beijing. She addressed her concerns about some of China's economic policies. Including China's use of non-market tools like expanded subsidies for its state-owned enterprises and domestic firms, as well as barriers to market access for foreign firms. I've been particularly troubled by punitive actions that have been taken against U.S. firms in recent months. Yellen criticized Beijing's new export controls on minerals key to making semiconductors, but she noted Washington seeks a healthy competition with Beijing instead of a total decoupling. Her trip aims to stabilize the fraught ties between the two powers. U.S.-China relations have sunk to their lowest point in decades, especially after the spy balloon incident in February. Yellen's trip follows Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. The Treasury Department said Yellen won't meet with Xi, and no breakthroughs are expected on major disputes. New Zealand is reaffirming its stance on China. The country's prime minister said it would continue to engage with its largest trading partner, although dialogue could prove difficult. A strong, mature and complex relationship means that we will have those tough conversations, just as I also raised areas of dis disagreement with the Chinese leadership when I was in Beijing last week. But I think it's better to be having those conversations than not. Hipkin said New Zealand and China hold different views on democratic values and human rights issues. But he stressed that the road to engagement is both open and honest. New Zealand is a key U.S. ally in the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance, but the country has been seen as a moderate or even absent voice on Beijing. In this regard, Hipkins said his country's independent foreign policy doesn't mean a neutral stance, and New Zealand will make decisions based on its own national interests. North Korean soccer player Han Kwang-sung once made his name as the first person from his country to score in one of the five major European leagues and he made a surprising move to the Italian giants Juventus. But that promising career was cut short when UN sanctions called to repatriate all North Korean workers. Han disappeared from the public eye, leaving fans wondering about his whereabouts. Now his former coach and teammate are sharing about their former members' life and work with the team. He became known as the Little North Korean. Bursting into the soccer world in 2017, Pyongyang-born striker Han Kwang-song impressed teammates and coaches, rising to the heady heights of Italian giant Juventus, aged just 21. Then he vanished, his whereabouts still unknown. He's losing the best years of, of, of his career. Max Canzi, then the under-19 coach for Italian club Cagliari, was asked to assess Han at the start of his career. He was very fast and he took very fast decisions and he was very, very good in controlling the ball, shooting with both feet, and he was, a, he was a very good talent, very good talent. Signing him was a challenge, navigating UN sanctions ordering member states to repatriate all North Korean workers following a North Korean nuclear test in 2017. Han joined Cagliari as an academy player. Just two months later, he was playing in Serie A, 
the top division of the Italian Soccer League. A blockbuster $3.7 million transfer to Juventus followed, then a $4.6 million contract to Aldo Hale in Qatar, his last sporting move. Winning the Qatar Stars League trophy in August 2020, this was the last time he was seen in public. Months later, a UN document showed Han had been deported in line with sanctions, boarding a Qatar Airways flight from Doha to Rome in January 2021. It is here that the trail goes cold. North Korea's borders are still shut due to COVID-19, making repatriation impossible. For Han, one of his former teammates says the tragedy is a promising career cut short. You're dedicating your whole life, your whole life to that, and it gets it gets taken away from you. Um, because of political reasons. Pennington says Han was well-liked and fit in easily, but was always accompanied by an Italian man he called security. More likely, he was his minder, a common way Pyongyang monitors its own when overseas. Anytime Pennington asked about North Korea, he says the conversation ended abruptly. He, he would just say, yeah, good, good, and, uh, and that's it, nothing, nothing else. Han was once a success story of North Korea's sporting aspirations. Only 24 years old, the young striker could now be a victim of its nuclear ambitions. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. When we return, the Australian Chancellor said Europe's asylum system has fallen apart. He called for cooperation at a summit with Hungary and Serbia and a glimpse into Ukraine's technology arms race with Russia. Innovators and military officials brainstorm ways to neutralize Russian suicide drones. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. Leaders of Austria, Hungary, and Serbia were in Vienna for the third trilateral migration summit. High on the meeting agenda is the fight against illegal migration. We have to realize that the asylum system of the European Union is broken, that it does not work. That's why it's important to work well together bilaterally. Austria's chancellor said although his country's economy needs migration, it must be regulated. The Serbian president said his country is planning to work more with North Macedonia on border crossing issues. Both countries are major migration paths into the EU. The U.S. is expected to announce a new military aid package for Ukraine today. It's said to include a controversial weapon called cluster bombs. The smaller bombs the weapon disperses don't always explode and create risks for civilians years after a conflict. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the move. A Pentagon spokesman said Thursday the Biden administration was considering sending cluster munitions to Ukraine, but only those with a reduced failure rate. And the ones that we are considering providing would not include older variants uh, with dud rates that are higher than 2.35 percent. 
cluster munitions, or cluster bombs are canisters that hold tens to hundreds of smaller bomblets, also known as submunitions. The canisters can be dropped from aircraft, launched from missiles, or fired from artillery, naval guns, or rocket launchers. The munitions break open at a set height, depending upon the area of the target, and the bomblets spread out over that area. They are fused by a timer to explode closer to or on the ground, spreading shrapnel that is designed to kill troops or take out armored vehicles like tanks. But they don't always explode. Failure rates vary based on the terrain and can reach as high as 40%. Ukrainian officials have repeatedly asked the U.S. for the weapons, but the Biden administration has been wary of providing them over widespread concerns of civilian casualties. A top Pentagon official told lawmakers last month that cluster munitions would be useful to Ukraine, especially against dug-in Russian positions on the battlefield. Some Republicans in Congress have urged President Biden to supply them, while many Democrats oppose the move. Human Rights Watch said in a report Thursday that both Russian and Ukrainian forces have used cluster munitions that have killed Ukrainian civilians. It's calling on both Russia and Ukraine to stop using the weapons and urging the U.S. not to supply them. The international advocacy group says Ukraine fired cluster munition rockets into Russian-controlled areas in and around the eastern Ukrainian city of Izium last year, killing at least eight civilians and wounding 15 others. It cited interviews with over 100 residents, witnesses, and local emergency personnel. Ukraine denies having used the weapon. Over 120 countries signed an international treaty banning the weapons in 2008. Russia, Ukraine, and the U.S. have all declined to sign the treaty. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In a basement in downtown Kyiv last month, engineers and innovators met with senior military officials. The gathering was intended to brainstorm ways to better neutralize the Russian suicide drones that still devastate Ukrainian cities. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the mission. It was a rare up-close glimpse into Ukraine's technology arms race with Russia. A public-private partnership is pumping out thousands of combat drones in a booming wartime industry. The war today is technological with changes in technology and on the battlefield happening every day. New unmanned aerial vehicles appear as well as innovations in their practical use. Teams of experts presented the best drone tech to combat Russia's Iranian drones called Shaheds. The Ukrainian drones can shoot at the Shaheds or interfere with their electric signals. We remember very well last year when attacks on our energy and critical infrastructure objects began. We want to prepare for the next heating season, for the next winter to respond to these challenges. The West has supplied sophisticated air defense systems to counter missile attacks, but using a multi-million dollar missile to take down a $50,000 drone is far from cost effective. In May alone, there were more than 300 drones targeting Ukraine. Our task is to lower the cost of destroying Shaheds. We're talking about detection of drones using acoustic as well as other means and also about the actual destruction. It is not profitable to use air defense rockets to destroy Shaheds. Currently, there are 40 companies that can sell drones to the government. Ukraine hopes to buy 200,000 drones, both for strikes and reconnaissance, by the end of the year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Almost a thousand World War II bombs recovered from the Black Sea and destroyed. A video from Russia's emergency ministry recorded the results of a months-long effort by divers in Crimea. The divers were working for a third consecutive year to remove explosives left on the bottom of the Black Sea after the Second World War. The dangerous findings include artillery and mortar shells and hand grenades of both German and Soviet production. 
In the previous two years, the teams have removed and destroyed over 6,000 explosive objects. When we come back, paleontologists in Queensland, Australia are unveiling prehistoric secrets. They're using a medical scanner to examine dinosaur footprints. And new sets of pickleball courts pop up at great New York City locations. The city is helping to spread the pickleball craze to more residents. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. All the people who were trapped in Quito's highlands after a cable car malfunction have been rescued. That's according to a statement from the municipality of the capital of Ecuador. The statement said authorities rescued 27 people suspended in the gondolas when service was down and 47 were stranded on top of the mountain. The mayor of Quito ordered cable car operators to stop until investigations have been carried out. Firefighters were alerted around 4 p.m. Thursday local time. They started rescue efforts in the highlands shortly after. Paleontologists in Queensland, Australia, are using a medical scanner to examine dinosaur footprints. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on their study of a remote area in the Australian outback. This remote area is more than 900 miles away from Brisbane. Paleontologist Scott Hocknell says he feels like a detective. He hopes that these advanced technological tools unveil prehistoric secrets. It's like looking at a crime scene 93 million years ago where most of the perpetrators are missing, they've gone, they've well and truly died out. Uh, we have no eyewitnesses, but we're looking at this scene and we've got to look for evidence. Hocknell and his team are using medical imaging to penetrate the core of fossilized footprints. This research could help us understand and visualize prehistoric times. Theories abound as to what happened here. Some believe that the area was a wasteland, but Hocknell's study paints a very different picture. There are many different layers with footprints. We're finding plants that were growing over the, the surface, and we're even finding potential traces of insects and burrows. Using his findings, Hocknell has constructed a digital picture of how the area may have looked like in prehistoric times, and it's far from barren. Big open floodplain with plants and, and a, a fantastic virgin life of lush growth and plants for animals to eat. So it's kind of like what you would expect today in the Serengeti or in the Okavango Delta. Plenty of fossils still need to be scanned, which may reveal even more secrets. The results of the study will be included in Queensland Museum's dinosaur exhibit. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A small Canadian town went after a big world record, and the results were historical, or rather prehistorical, thanks to some devoted dancing dinosaurs. Watch a tiny Canadian town rewrite the history books by attempting to break a dinosaur dance party world record. The town of Dundurn, Saskatchewan only has a population of about 700 people, but Jurassic times call for Jurassic measures. So organizers used social media to spread the word and it worked. Folks came from far and wide and the community was transformed into a prehysterical party, a velocirapturous rave of dancing dinos. Considering Guinness has the current record for dressed as dino gatherings at 252 people, 
The Dundurn Dino attempt didn't just triceratop the previous record, it Tyrannosaurus wrecked it with a reported event headcount of 1,163 inflatable costumes. Now, as Guinness works to confirm the dynamite feat, these Dundurnosaurs play the waiting game. Removing caffeine's psychoactive effects from your life can lead to several notable benefits. Here's NTD's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Caffeine is the world's most widely consumed psychoactive substance. 85% of Americans rely on it daily. However, there are benefits from going without. Drinking less coffee may help to reduce anxiety, reduce headaches, and improve sleep quality. Let's look a little more closely at sleep. According to the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, caffeine stays in your system for an extended period. To be specific, caffeine has a half-life of up to five hours. A chemical's half-life is how long it takes a dose of it to be reduced by half in your body. Say you consume 100 milligrams of caffeine, that's roughly one cup of coffee. After five hours, you'll still have 50 milligrams of caffeine in your system. It will take another five hours to reach 25 milligrams. This means that that afternoon pick-me-up could still be affecting you by bedtime that evening. Eliminating caffeine from your diet means you'll likely fall asleep more easily. It also means you'll stay asleep longer, which should help to improve energy and productivity throughout your day. Next, let's look at anxiety. Caffeine is a stimulant that can cause an increase in anxiety and jitteriness. Reducing your intake or quitting caffeine entirely could reduce your likelihood of experiencing these symptoms. It can also help you to feel calmer and more relaxed. A research study was conducted with college-age participants. It found that caffeine intake was associated with depressive symptoms and higher levels of anxiety. A review from the National Institutes of Health concluded that caffeine can cause anxiety symptoms in normal individuals, especially in those who have pre-existing anxiety disorders. And finally, let's look at high blood pressure and other diseases. Caffeine can have a negative effect on your health, especially when used in large amounts. Dr. Francisco Lopez Jimenez is a cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He said in a statement that caffeine may cause a short but dramatic increase in your blood pressure, even if you don't have high blood pressure. Pressure. High levels of caffeine can cause cardiac issues, including heart palpitations. It even increases the risk of heart disease. Evidence shows a strong link between high caffeine intake and headaches due to how it can make blood vessels in the brain swell. Dr. Theodore Strange is the chair of medicine at Staten Island University Hospital. He gave his recommendation for how much we should be drinking. He said that about four cups of coffee per day is probably safe, but more than this can cause the jitters and insomnia. He also added that coffee could have effects on one's health, especially if someone also has heart disease or is on medications that may exacerbate effects of caffeine. Eliminating coffee from your diet can help to reduce your risk of these health problems and promote overall better health. We all know that exercising is important to keeping the body healthy, but without adequate sleep, you might not be seeing all the benefits. That's according to a new study. British researchers looked at people's exercise habits and the amount of sleep they got on average over a decade. They found that those who did high-intensity workouts but slept less than six hours a night had faster overall cognitive decline than short sleepers who exercised infrequently. In general, people who had higher levels of physical activity and slept between six and eight hours per night had better cognitive function as they aged. 
Researchers say this shows that regular exercise might not always be sufficient to counter the long-term effects of lack of sleep, and that the two go hand-in-hand hand for better health. If you're looking to increase your sleep, keep your bedroom cool and dark, avoid caffeine in the afternoon, and try to stick to a sleep schedule. The pickleball craze is picking up in the big city. New York has brand new pickleball courts in prime locations. Proper courts were previously hard to find. Now a pickleball court in Union Square attracts players who can reserve the courts ahead of time. There are a total of four courts at the location. The busy location only allows pickleball on Thursdays, and court reservations start a week in advance. The courts will be open for play until August 3rd. Best of all, it's free. Central Park has 14 courts set up inside New York's landmark Woman Rink Ice Skating Rink. These courts are open seven days a week, starting in April and going through October. The courts vary per activity. USA Pickleball says the sport was invented in 1965. It started when a badminton court and net was combined with a tennis table racket and plastic ball with holes in it. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Chris Beers.